If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. A few weeks ago, I gave a public talk as part of Wolverhampton Literature Festival, and the subject of my talk was Fahrenheit 451, a book which is 70 years old this year. And if you're a regular listener to Bradbury 100 or a viewer of Bradbury 101 on YouTube, you'll know that I've done a series of these at 70 pieces. I did The Martian Chronicles at 70. I did The Illustrated Man at 70. We just happened to be going through a phase where all of Ray's major works are hitting their 70th anniversary. So in today's episode of Bradbury 100, I'm giving you a version of that same talk. It's not actually recorded live at the event, but I recorded this separately after the event. And you can also see a video version of it, so if you want to see all the illustrations that the attendees of the talk saw on screen, you'll be able to see that on my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101. So without further ado, here it is, my talk on Fahrenheit 451. Literacy, censorship and burning books. So what I'm going to do in this talk is just say a little bit about Ray Bradbury for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know who Ray is. Then I'll talk about where Fahrenheit 451 fits in the chronology of Ray's works. And then we'll go into the book itself, look at how it's structured, what the story is, who the characters are and that sort of thing. And then after that, I'll talk about the origin of the book, the writing of the book, how it came to be. And finally, I'll finish off with my assessment of where Fahrenheit 451 sits today. Is it still a relevant book? I think it is. I think it's as relevant now as it's ever been. And it does really seem to speak to the world that we live in today, January 2023. So for the benefit of anyone who's been living on another planet, Ray Bradbury was born in 1920 in Waukegan, Illinois, a small town just outside Chicago. And then his family moved when he was about 12 or 13 to California. And that's where Ray spent the rest of his life. In his 20s and 30s, he became a published author. And that's his author photo there, the the photo that appeared on The Martian Chronicles. And then he flourished all the way through to the 2010s. And he passed away in 2012. It was one hell of a long life that he lived. And he wrote plenty of books. Oh, and I always have to put this in. I had the honour and privilege of meeting Ray on about four occasions. He was late in life at that time. This photo is from, I think, 2008. This was taken in California. It's me looking about 12. And Ray, well, he would have been, I think, 87 at the time this was taken. But it was great to meet him and to be able to talk to him about his work. So what about that work? Well, it starts in terms of books with Dark Carnival in 1947, and then he followed that with The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man, Golden Apples of the Sun, and then Fahrenheit 451. So it's his fifth book. But if you look at what went before it, we're talking about things that were really based on short stories. Dark Carnival is a short story collection. The Martian Chronicles looks like a novel, but it's really a collection of short stories stitched together. Then came The Illustrated Man, short story collection, and The Golden Apples of the Sun, short story collection. Fahrenheit 451, therefore, was his first real attempt at a novel, which is to say a continuous narrative with a beginning and a middle and an end, and a a sort of a linear plot and standard storytelling methods, as opposed to The Martian Chronicles, which was very much a patchwork and an attempt to stitch together stories that were written separately, and then he had to try and fit them together. But with Fahrenheit, we're talking about something that was written 
as one continuous narrative work. And it's a very good debut if you consider this to be his first proper published novel. Fahrenheit 451 was his fifth book, and it looks like he's ramping up his career at that point because he had two books published in 1953. And here comes a parade of his books. It's going to go by fairly quickly, and it's going to be a bit of a blur. You might recognise a few titles in there if you've read some Bradbury before. And this isn't even all of his books. What I've done here is just taken his main books from his mainstream publishers, for the most part. So what a legacy. Fahrenheit 451 is fairly early, but it's also recognised by many people as being the pinnacle of his writing achievement. And let's take a look at the story. We're telling the story of Guy Montag, who is a fireman. OK, fairly straightforward. The twist, of course, is that in the world of Fahrenheit 451, firemen don't put fires out, they start them. Why do they start fires? Because they're burning books. Their job, their mission, is to destroy books. Because books are seen as a threat in this particular world. You're not allowed to read anything that has any intellectual content. You might be allowed to read instruction manuals, maybe recipe books, but anything deeper than that, uh -uh, the firemen will be around. They'll burn your books, and they might even burn you. So Guy is very much a tool of the system. He doesn't question anything. He does what he's told to do. He believes in what he's doing. He knows it's important work, and he follows orders without question. Until one day he meets Clarice. Clarice is a teenage girl, 16 or 17, and she's a free thinker, a free spirit. She's not part of the system. She is something of a rebel. And she is able to appreciate the blue sky and the grass and the wind and the rain, which is something that Guy's never really thought of before. Guy just does his job. He's not really looked up or looked around. So Clarice allows him to see that there's more than one way to live in this world, more than one way to view this world. Now, Clarice acts as a catalyst for the change that sweeps through Montag. By the end of the book, he is completely outside of the system. He is a rebel. In fact, he may even be leading the rebels back after the system, the state, has destroyed itself. Clarisse is a catalyst because she sparks the initial interest in uh, Guy Montag, and then she disappears. She literally disappears from the story. We never find out for sure what happened to her, although it's hinted at that she may be dead, she may have been killed by the state, but we don't know that. All that we know when we're reading the book is what Guy knows. Guy doesn't know what happens to her, and therefore we don't know what happens to her. But the effect of that, of having her there to trigger this new way of thinking in Montag, and then go, is terrific. It means she really is a catalyst. She starts a chemical reaction, but doesn't need to be there to take part in it. Now, Bradbury did have some second thoughts about that, and when he eventually wrote his stage play of Fahrenheit 451, he brought Clarice back at the end of the story. So he um, had second thoughts, and he was triggered in that by what Francois Truffaut did in the 1966 film of Fahrenheit 451. Truffaut brings Clarice back. And Bradbury was, was really taken with that idea. And so he brought her back as well in the play. But in the book, she's gone. She is a catalyst. So having been allowed to think other, what does Guy do? Well, the first thing he does is he steals a book. He's out on a book burning. He's supposed to be setting the books ablaze but he just picks one up when no one is looking, tucks it in his jacket and takes it home. He collects a few books and the mere act of possessing a book makes him a rebel, makes him an enemy of the state, essentially, which is a very dangerous position for him to be in. Once he's stolen the book, of course, he wants to read it. So that's what he does. And there is the 
definite crime. Maybe possessing a book is not a crime, although it is, but certainly reading a book in the world of Fahrenheit 451 is a crime. Now, eventually, Guy has to run away, and he joins a group of people who are just like him. They're people who read books, but they've taken it one stage further. They've got this systematic thing going where they memorise books so that the physical book isn't needed anymore. And this comes as a bit of a shock to Montag, because he learns that these book people, who so treasure books that they memorise them word for word, these book people also burn books. And the reason they do it is so that they won't be punished or persecuted anymore. They've realised that what's important in a book is not the physicality, it's not the paper, it's not the ink. It's the words. And the words are the thoughts of somebody else, the thoughts of somebody who went before us. So these book people have realised that the physical book doesn't matter as long as we preserve the contents. And so the book people memorise the book perfectly and then they burn the book, just as the firemen do. But these people do it knowingly and having already taken safeguards to prevent the book being forgotten. And in a way, that returns humankind to the oral tradition. You know, when people first started telling stories and people became storytellers, none of it was written down. Writing was a much later invention in human history or prehistory, I suppose. And certainly printing was a, a much later event still. And even then, when printing came about, not everybody could read. So the whole idea of physical printing of words on a page which people read is, in a way, shown by Fahrenheit 451 to be a, a, temporary, a temporary thing, a, a kind of a glitch in history. And that the most important thing is where we started, which is telling stories and memorising stories and being able to recall them and pass them on verbally, orally. Now, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, there is a nuclear war. It's been hanging over the, the book all the way through. There are these reminders of fighter aircraft flying overhead. But it's only at the end of the book that a nuclear war finally breaks out. And the book people realise this is the end, the end for the state, the system, maybe for civilization entirely. And they, having been walking away from the city and memorising their books, now they turn around and head back to the city. And that's where the book ends. Bradbury leaves you, therefore, to imagine what might happen next. And a lesser writer, I'm sure, would have written a sequel and, you know, shown the book people returning to the ruins of civilization, learning how to build because they've memorized books on building and rebuilding civilization from the ground up. But that's not something that Bradbury was interested in doing. He was more interested in showing you the importance of books, the importance of thought, of intellect. Uh, and also of of being able to memorise and recall information given to us by those who went before us, smarter people than us, basically. Now, what about the characters of Fahrenheit 451? I've talked about Guy, who is clearly the central character, and we follow him all the way through. It's as if we're sitting on his shoulder and seeing everything that he sees, learning everything that he learns. But Guy sits at the centre of four other characters who are kind of pulling and pushing him in different directions. Here's Guy, and he's got two female characters pulling him in different directions. One who I've mentioned before, Clarice. So she's the one who opens his eyes and says, hey, look, this is how things can be. You, you, you don't have to be this workaday guy who just... Uh, workaday guy. See what I did there? Uh, this guy who uh, simply follows orders and uh, does the business of the state. Clarice shows him there is another way. But after he meets Clarice, he goes home and at home is his wife, Mildred. And Mildred is the 
absolute opposite of Clarice. She spends her time, well, if she's not stoned, she's uh, listening to something on these seashell earpieces that she has, or she's watching a soap opera on this massive wall screen system that everyone has in their house in Fahrenheit 451. You don't just have a TV, you have a screen that fills an entire wall and then another wall, and another wall, and you can completely surround yourself and immerse yourself in TV, which in some ways I think is great. I love that. But in this world, it's a way of suppressing imagination. There's no intellectual content in this TV. It is interactive, and this is how the state gets you to engage with it, is by having these interactive soap operas, which Mildred spends most of her time engaged with. When she's not doing all of that, Mildred is simply meeting with her other housewife friends, which means that Fahrenheit 451 gets a bit of a bad rap these days as being misogynistic. I would argue that it's not misogynistic because Clarice is such an important female character. But it, yeah, it, he certainly has a go at the housewife concept which, of course, was the standard thing for women in the US in the 1950s, really, was not so much to go out to work, but to be the housewife. So he's having a go at that. But he's doing it really to have a go at the system, the state. What he really wants is for Mildred to break free of that and see, like Guy does, that there is a better life. And she does try. There are moments when she tries to do that but ultimately she's unable and she's fearful, so she doesn't. But you can see Guy is being pulled in two different directions by these two women. Then in the other direction, I mean, they, they, these particular dimensions don't have any meaning, I've just invented them for, the, for this purpose. But he's got two male characters who are pushing and pulling him in another direction. The fire chief, which is Guy's boss, and he's also the sort of self-appointed historian of Fahrenheit 451. He's the one who tells us how this world came to be. But I don't think we should trust him. We shouldn't assume that everything he says is true, because he is a tool of the state. He could be lying through his teeth. But there's no way of us knowing. So he is what we would call an unreliable narrator. And at the other extreme from him... Professor Faber. Now, Faber is an intellectual, somebody who reads books, collects books, hides away fearfully in his attic, afraid that one day he's going to be found out and burned along with his books. But he is able to act as a kind of a mentor to Guy. Well, Fire Chief Beatty is a bit of a mentor to Guy as well, but they're mentoring him in different directions, whereas Beatty is mentoring him on how horrible books are, and Guy, you must do this job of burning your books really well so that we keep the world nice the way it is. And Professor Faber is, on the other hand, saying, don't do that, read these books, behave in this way, fight back against the system. Even though Faber himself comes across as quite cowardly, He's quite happy for somebody else to fight the system on his guidance, but he's not that interested in taking risks himself. So he uses Guy as his mouthpiece, if you like. And he does this almost literally because Faber gives Montag an earpiece, just like um, Mildred's earpiece that lets her separate herself from the world, lets her cut herself off from the world. Well, Guy is given one of these, so exactly the same technology, but this allows him to listen to Faber's voice. So Faber is like a little angel sitting on his shoulder, a little conscience uh, who advises him through the earpiece. So we've got the female characters pulling him one way, the male characters pulling him the other. And Guy, of course, has to make up his own mind, has to make his decisions. In the end, he goes the way of Clarice, he goes the way of Professor Faber, and he leaves Mildred, or I think Mildred leaves him, and he leaves the fire chief. And then to the themes of Fahrenheit 451. Some of these obviously have come up as I've been talking, but the major themes, I would say, are that books hold ideas, and that ideas are powerful, 
which is a good thing for us. But it's a bad thing if you are this oppressive state, because if books contain powerful ideas, they will give people ideas. And we don't want that. We must censor them. We must censor the books and crack down on anyone who reads them. So central theme of the book is that books are really, really powerful. There's another theme in there, which is about entertainment media and drugs, which I would sort of group together because the book sort of sees them both as being really quite evil, at least the way they're implemented in this world. The first evidence of drugs that we see is when we meet Mildred, who is um, unconscious. She's overdosed. And we soon learn that drug taking is an everyday thing in this world. Partly we see this because Montag sends for the paramedics who come and pump Mildred's stomach out. But five minutes later, she's back to normal as if nothing's happened. And you just know that she's going to do it again. It's not that she um, deliberately took an overdose. It's just an accidental thing, an accidental consequence of being drugged all the time. Um, and the entertainment media is also something which is, is like a drug. People become addicted to these interactive soap operas and they're not, they're not interested in real life or anything beyond those sort of four walls that they spend their time watching. Another theme is to do with memory. Now, this shows up in some curious ways in the book. The, the angle that I am quite taken with and... I can't 100% intellectualise it, but I just feel that it's uh, a good theme or a good use of the theme. And that is that Bradbury associates the loss of literacy, the fact that people cannot read or do not read, he associates this with a shallowness of memory. They literally can't remember their own past. Guy asks his wife, where did we meet? And she doesn't know. She can't remember. He can't remember. And this is implied to be a consequence of this very shallow life, uh, these very shallow lives that people lead. So the loss of literacy is linked to this shallowness of memory. Now, where that becomes awkward for Guy is that salvation comes through memorising books. But if you're somebody who has a very shallow memory because of the way you've been raised, how on earth are you going to memorise books? Well, it turns out that, OK, it's um, it can be a bit easier than you think, because according to the book, we we more or less function like a tape recorder. We're constantly recording. The only thing that's difficult for us is the playback. So as long as you can get into the, the zone, a sort of a, a hypnotic state, that allows you to replay what you've memorised, then it shouldn't be a problem. That's what the book posits. I mean, other people have said that wouldn't really work. If we really tried to do this, we would fail big time. But in the book, it works. People are able to memorise perfectly. And there's a little clue as to how that happens, which is that at one point in the book, Guy gets stuck in his head a little earworm, a little uh, advertising jingle which is for Denim's dentifrice. And there's a little jingle that goes with it. He memorises the jingle. In fact, he can't stop himself memorising the jingle. So there's the proof, if you like, that we are kind of constantly recording, and that's how earworms work, at least in the world of Fahrenheit. I don't think this is how it really works in real life, but for the purpose of the book, yeah, that's how it works. And then the final theme of the book really is readers can save the world. Hooray! So it is a book that is about the ability to read, the willingness to read, and the open-mindedness that comes with the idea that you're going to open a book and be confronted with words you've never read before, text you've never seen before, and to be open-minded enough to stick with it and to follow the the writer, the narrator, on the journey that is in the book. That's a really great theme. And of course, you, you see uh, this meme all over the internet, or variations of this. This is a quotation from Bradbury. He says, the problem in our country, meaning the US, of course, 
isn't with books being banned, but with people no longer reading. You don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. Just get people to stop reading them. It's a frightening thought, but that is the philosophy behind Fahrenheit 451. Yes, in the book there is suppression by a hostile government, a hostile regime that has somehow taken over, but the book seems to be telling us that it's not that that regime came to power and then banned books. It's more that people became hostile to books and that facilitated that kind of regime to come in in the first place. And that is where Fahrenheit gives us a frightening picture of the world we live in today. Some people have it in their head that science fiction is about predicting the future. No, it's not. What science fiction is good for is extrapolating from where we are now to where we might be going so that we can say, hey, watch out. Or because we might want to say, look, here is a possible future we might want to live in. Have you ever considered this? So science fiction is capable of taking the dystopian turn, which is the warning, don't do this because we'll end up over there. Or the utopian turn, which is, hey, look, this is how the world could be. Things could be better if only we would do this. And Fahrenheit clearly falls into this. It is a dystopia. The very ending of the book may be a utopian turn because it is for, only for a paragraph or two, but it's kind of a positive thing that happens at the end. There is a rebirth. There is a phoenix from the ashes of all these books. But what Fahrenheit 451 does do is it anticipates some things that we now see as part of everyday life. So I've called these anticipations and I've put these in the form of quotes from the book. And in her ears, the little seashells, the thimble radios tamped tight and an electronic ocean of sound of music and talk and music and talk coming in, coming in on the shore of her unsleeping mind. So there's a description of Mildred with her little seashell radios. Now, if you walk down any high street these days, a good 50% of people are cutting themselves off from the world with headphones or earbuds. I do it myself. If I'm going out walking, I put my earphones in. I listen to podcasts. It's just a nice thing to do. But I do appreciate that by doing that, I'm cutting myself off from people. And if somebody comes to talk to you, you kind of can't hear you. <laughs> you you shut yourself off. Bradbury anticipated this. Back in 1953, there were no little earpieces you could stick in your ear. They came a few years later, but they didn't, didn't exist in 53. Bradbury doesn't say she puts an earpiece in. He doesn't say she puts a miniature radio in her ears. He doesn't explain the technology. What he does is he uses pure metaphor. He calls them seashells. So he's likening this business of putting things in your ears to listen to. He's likening it to holding a seashell up to your ear and listening to the sound of the sea. He's also referring to it as a thimble radio. And that's giving us a, 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 a picture of the size of this thing. A little thimble would fit on the tip of your little finger. So he's using metaphors to describe these technologies. And this is why, of all science fiction, I maintain Bradbury's science fiction dates the least. Because he, frankly, he didn't know very much about technology. So he couldn't describe how these things would work. All he could do is tell you that they exist and that they're used and then give them a metaphorical name. Here's another one, but this is a non-technological one. Books cut shorter, condensations, digests, tabloids. Everything boils down to the gag, the snap ending. Classics cut to fit 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fill a two-minute book column. So this is from Beatty, 
the fire chief, one of his monologues where he explains how the world came to be the way it is. And this really does resonate for me with our modern world. This is TikTok, for goodness sake. It's about condensing everything, getting everything down to a really short soundbite level so that people will maintain their interest. Don't drive them away by giving them more than they want. So BT is telling us that's how the world of Fahrenheit came about, because people developed shorter and shorter attention spans. And eventually books had to go because you can't read a book in, in a few seconds. So that is an anticipation that really strikes home with the world that we live in today. But as I say, we must be careful because Beatty is an unreliable narrator in terms of the world of Fahrenheit. This may not actually be how the world came about, but we have no way of knowing. All we've got is what we're told by Beatty. And he is a tool of the system. And then to continue with that quotation, out of the nursery, into college, and back to the nursery. There's your intellectual pattern for the past five centuries or more. So again, Beatty telling us what human nature is like. This is what we do. Yeah, we, we go to college, we learn some stuff, but then as soon as we don't have to be there anymore, yeah, we're, we're just back home and we're just back to the nursery. We're childlike again. We stop reading. As adults, we don't read just like babies don't read. We really do revert to, you know, the earliest form of ourselves, according to Beatty. Now, of course, Fahrenheit 451 didn't come from nowhere. Bradbury had his influences. One is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Bradbury apparently had read most of Huxley's work, except Brave New World, up until 1944. So he would have been in his early 20s when he read Brave New World. The other book is Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler, which is a book that is historical. It's about Stalinist Russia, and it's about somebody who was a party member and then the party disapproves of him for some reason, and so he undergoes interrogation. A lot of people assume that Bradbury was influenced by 1984, by George Orwell, because it came out about five years before Fahrenheit 451. People assumed, hey, Bradbury read that book and then wrote his own version. Well, no. In fact, Bradbury had been writing things that eventually became Fahrenheit 451, back in the mid-1940s. He'd been writing an unfinished and unpublished novel called When Ignorant Armies Clash by Night. And quite a few of the elements of Fahrenheit are in there. So if there is any similarity between 1984 and Fahrenheit 451, it's more of a coincidence than anything else. And certainly if you look at the detail of the two books, yes, you've got somebody who is a tool of the system who rebels, but the outcome is different in the two books. In 1984, Winston Smith is completely crushed by the end of the book. Whereas in Fahrenheit 451, our hero, Guy Montag, he's the phoenix from the ashes. So it's a very different ending. There's also a totally different level of detail. Orwell tells us who the nation states are in uh, 1984. He tells us all about the workings of government, the ministry of truth, the ministry of love, and so on. Bradbury, on the other hand, gives us none of that. We literally don't know who's in power. We just know that they burn books. We don't know necessarily which country we're in. It appears to be the USA, but does the USA still exist? Don't know. The book doesn't tell us. So the approach of Bradbury and the approach of Orwell are poles apart. So even if there might be some plot similarities in places, I think they are very, very different books. So now let's take a look at the writing of Fahrenheit 451, how it came to be. And I'll go through this fairly quickly. There is a much longer story to tell here. 
and you can get a hint of it from the book called Pleasure to Burn, Fahrenheit 451 Stories, which is a collection of precursor works. So things that Ray wrote before Fahrenheit 451, which clearly were part of the evolutionary process that led to Fahrenheit 451. And there's another book which is harder to get hold of because it was a limited edition book, and that's called Match to Flame. And that contains all of those precursor stories, but it also has some essays in there that place them all in context and give you a good textual history of how Fahrenheit 451 came to be. So, as I say, there's a long story to be told there, and it's been covered in two books. And here, I don't have the time, but I'll give you the bare bones of where Fahrenheit came from. So we go back to February 1951, so two years back from Fahrenheit. And of course, if it was published in 1951, this earlier work, it must have been written in 1950. And the work in question is The Fireman, which appeared in this Galaxy science fiction magazine in 1951. Ignore the cover of the magazine. I always have to say this to people. There are no spaceships in The Fireman or in Fahrenheit 451. The cover has nothing at all to do with Bradbury's story. But Bradbury's name is on the cover. He was quite a well-known name in the science fiction field at this point. And so if you've got a Bradbury story in your magazine, you're going to put his name on the cover. And here it is, The Fireman by Ray Bradbury. This is the first version published of Fahrenheit 451. And it's essentially the same story. It's got essentially the same dynamics, the same central character of Montag. It's got the fire chief. It's got the uh, the home situation, the wife, the book burning. But it is missing a number of elements. And what Bradbury did in The Fireman was tell a very good story. But then in developing Fahrenheit 451, he expanded that story, more or less doubled the length of it and gave it a much richer texture than that original piece had. Now, if you've looked at my videos on Bradbury 101 on YouTube, you'll have seen a version of this before. But this is my attempt to show the difference between the fireman and Fahrenheit 451. The fireman's 24,000 words or thereabouts. Fahrenheit 451 is 46,000 words or thereabouts. Along the bottom there, I've put a scale showing types of story. And this is based on the classifications that's typically used in things like uh, awards. So Hugo Awards, Nebula Awards, they use these length classifications to indicate different types of published work. So The Fireman falls into the category of a novella. Fahrenheit 451, on the other hand, reaches just, but only just, into the novel category. So it is a novel, but it's a very short one. So let me skim very quickly through the story of the fireman. I'm not going to go through every detail of it, but just enough so that I can then show you how Fahrenheit is different from the fireman. But the fireman, I have to say, is a very good novella. It does stand up well and it is worth reading. Some people even prefer it to Fahrenheit 451. The fireman focuses on Montag, oh, but he's called Leonard rather than Guy. And the fire chief is in there, but he's called Leahy instead of Beatty. The fireman opens in the firehouse. There's a game of cards being played by firemen, and they're waiting around, waiting for the alarm to go off so that they can go off and do some book burning, which they do. They go off, they burn some books. They witness an old lady set fire to herself rather than see her books be burned. This sounds like Fahrenheit 451, doesn't it? Because it is the same story. He goes home. We meet Mildred and Mildred has got these earphones in and is cutting herself off from the world. She's listening to radio, maybe music, speech, who knows. Then Clarice is introduced. And because we meet Clarice second, she comes across as something of an antidote to Mildred. And the last point I've put on there is that radio is the dominant medium. Bradbury wrote this in 1950, radio was still the very biggest of home media at that time. 
I think 1950-51 is the year that television took over and radio dipped and television took off. Here in the UK, television took off a couple of years later, which is around 1953, really. It's generally said that when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned in 53, that's when people went out and bought television sets. So in the UK, TV took off a little bit later than it did in the States. OK, so I'm going to leave that on the screen. That's what The Fireman is about. And now we can compare it to Fahrenheit 451. Well, the first thing to note is the change of character names. Bradbury seemed to like loading his character names with meaning, with connotations. So Leonard Montag, well, Montag, the German word for first day of the week, suggests a new beginning, maybe. But Leonard, what does that suggest? Like a lion? Not sure that that's particularly relevant to the hero of Fahrenheit 451. So Bradbury changes his name. He becomes Guy Montag. And of course, a guy here in the UK, a guy is a figure that we set fire to on November the 5th. So what better name for somebody who's going to have a fire lit underneath him and who is a professional fireman than Guy Montag? The fire chief's name changes. That's a little bit more mysterious. We go from Leahy to Beatty. It's not entirely clear what the difference is there. But if you listen to the audiobook versions that Bradbury recorded himself, you find that he doesn't always say Beatty. He doesn't always say Beatty, which is another pronunciation of that name. He sometimes seems to put an extra syllable in there. It's kind of Beatty. It almost sounds like deity. So deity, beity. Maybe this is a godlike character. Sometimes it sounds like the beginning of beatify. So maybe this fire chief sees himself as some kind of saintly figure. I don't think Bradbury is trying to be totally direct with these character names, and he might have been giving them names purely on instinct. But I really do think that there is some strong connotations in most of his character names. So the fireman opens in the firehouse with the game of cards, a very mundane scene. Fahrenheit, however, opens with that single sentence paragraph. It was a pleasure to burn. And then he goes into this tableau where he describes the fireman wrestling with the fire hose, which, of course, isn't spraying water. It's spraying burning kerosene. The next difference between Fireman and Fahrenheit is that in Fahrenheit, Clarice is introduced first. So our very grounded Montag discovers what it is to be imaginative as one of the first personal actions that we see in the story. Then in Fahrenheit, we meet Mildred. And we meet her very specifically in this scene where she has overdosed. So Bradbury here has reversed the sequence of events. In The Fireman, we meet Mildred first. We just see the humdrum reality of home, followed by the more out-there thinking of Clarice. But in Fahrenheit 451, he swaps them around so that we see the poetry, the free mind, the free spirit that is Clarice before we see the heavily oppressed and suppressed Mildred. And of course, in that scene, because it's the overdose scene, he introduces that drugs theme, which just isn't really there in Fireman at all. The next difference is the media. In Fireman, it's radio. So Bradbury has a, has a go at that dominant medium. But for Fahrenheit 451, he inflates it. Instead of satirising radio, he's now satirising television. And because this is science fiction, you do that by extrapolating. So he extrapolates that televisions will become so vast that they will take over the entire living room. And then the last difference that I've listed there, there are plenty more differences, but the last difference that I've listed there is that the fire chief's history monologues are expanded. So he does some monologuing in The Fireman, but it's taken 
to the next level in Fahrenheit 451. Now there are other changes as well as you read the two pieces and it's it's quite an instructive thing to do actually to read the fireman and then read Fahrenheit 451. And what I find is that if people read the fireman first they just say well this is Fahrenheit 451 and then you give them Fahrenheit 451 and they see the magic that has been added to the book. If you read them the other way around it feels like the fireman is a condensed version of Fahrenheit 451. It's it's a bit like reading the book and then going and seeing the film. Half of the stuff that you liked in the book isn't there. So that's quite informative as well. But obviously the correct way to do it, if you're going to read them both, is to read the fireman first and then follow it with Fahrenheit. Now famously, Bradbury wrote Fahrenheit 451 in a library. He went to UCLA... Uh, University of California, Los Angeles, and he went to the typewriter room down in the basement where you could rent a typewriter, and it was a coin-in-the-slot thing. So you sat there, you put your dime in the machine. It gave you, like, 20 minutes of typing, so you typed away, and when you run out of uh, typing time, you stick another dime in. So Bradbury talked about going to the library with a bag of dimes that he could put in hour after hour, as he wrote. And he did that for the fireman initially, and then like a year and a half later when he expanded the fireman into Fahrenheit, he did it again. So the bulk of the writing was done in a library. And that's really handy if you're writing a book that depends on quotations, and Fahrenheit is full of quotations. So uh, how great to be able to just reach out and grab a book off the shelf and then take a quotation from it and put it into your book. Anyway, this is the plaque from the wall in UCLA commemorating Bradbury's writing there. They don't have the typewriters anymore, so you can't go in there and do this yourself. Uh, but it is at least commemorated that Bradbury did that. Now, Fahrenheit has been adapted many times over the years. There have been two film versions. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is the Francois Truffaut one from 1966. And then there was the one from HBO from more recent times. The Truffaut one is pretty good. It's not a great movie, but it's a decent one. And the HBO one is, well, it's a decent movie, but it's not really Fahrenheit 451. I don't have any objection to it as a piece of film entertainment, and even as a, a dystopia in its own terms, it's not bad. But it really isn't Fahrenheit 451. There's no Mildred, for instance. This Montag is single. I think there was a Clarice in that version of the film, but her role was so very small and insignificant that it really is telling a very different story. The HBO version really seems to concentrate on the two central characters, the Michael B. Jordan character and the Michael Shannon character. And they're both terrific actors. You know, they they really were up for the role. I think it's the performances that saves the film, basically. But it really doesn't feel like Fahrenheit. It's got too many structurally important elements missing from the story. There have also been a couple of radio play versions of Fahrenheit as well. And it seems to work really well as a radio play because, of course, you get to use your imagination more than you do when you're watching a film, or at least that's what people say. And then there's the stage version. Bradbury had two attempts at writing a play based on Fahrenheit 451, one in the 1950s where he was under the mentorship of Charles Lawton, the famous actor who was a good friend of Bradbury's. Lawton didn't think very much of the play, and that's probably why Bradbury put it to one side and gave up on it. A couple of decades later, he plucked up the courage to try again, so he wrote a version which is still performed today. There's usually a couple of productions, mostly amateur productions, but there's usually a couple of productions a year of this. And here is Ray with his actors. He had his own theatre company for the last couple of decades of his life, and Fahrenheit 451 was one of the most popular works that they staged. And, of course, Fahrenheit 451 has stayed in print ever since 1953. Loads of different editions. Uh, sometimes they are just reprints with new covers. 
sometimes they are newly typeset. And there was an instance in the 1960s, I think, or the 70s, where the book became Bowdlerized. So where is Fahrenheit 451 at 70? Well, it is without a doubt Bradbury's bestseller. And when you consider that this is the guy who wrote The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man, Something Wicked This Way Comes, loads of short story collections, and then later in life, a trio of uh, sort of mystery novels, Death is a Lonely Business and the two sequels to it, a very prolific writer who sold an awful lot of books, most of which stayed in print for decades. Fahrenheit 451 is his bestseller. Of course, it's frequently mentioned in the same breath alongside other great dystopias. So whenever 1984 is mentioned or Brave New World is mentioned or The Handmaid's Tale, Fahrenheit 451 is likely to be mentioned as well. And I remember when Donald Trump was elected... The next day, Twitter and Facebook were full of photos from bookshops where staff in bookshops had gathered together all of the dystopias and put out a display of dystopian fiction to tie in with the election of Trump. And in those piles of books, you would normally see the big three, 1984, Brave New World, Handmaid's Tale and Fahrenheit 451. The book's been widely taught in American schools and also around the world, but primarily in American schools, which means a couple of generations of Americans have grown up with Fahrenheit 451. That can have a downside because, of course, the books you're made to read at school tend to be the books you hate. So I'm not saying that this is a good thing, but at least it's kept it in the public eye. And of course, that will have driven the sales of Fahrenheit 451 for all these years. For a number of years, Fahrenheit 451 was also part of the US Big Read literacy programme, you know, where communities were encouraged to read books together and form book groups and so on. Now, Fahrenheit was taken out of that programme a few years ago when they wanted to refresh the content. So it's no longer part of that programme. But people are still reading it in book groups. It's a very popular book for that purpose. And irony of ironies, Fahrenheit 451 is often challenged or banned and bowdlerized. There was this case, as I say, several decades ago, where it was brought to Bradbury's attention that the version of Fahrenheit 451 being used in schools was bowdlerized. He was shocked and he insisted that the proper text be reinstated. But we see Fahrenheit being challenged partly because it is clearly an anti-authority book. It's about a character who is a rebel, who rebels against the system. So that in itself is going to cause some people to challenge the book. The other reason that it gets challenged is because Fire Chief Beatty says some things which today are a little bit politically incorrect. Unfortunately for Bradbury, what tends to happen is that people assume that what Beattie is saying is what the author believes. Now, I maintain that Beattie is the unreliable narrator of those history sections of Fahrenheit 451. What we know about the past of 451 is not in the narrative from the author. It's in the monologuing and the dialoguing of Beattie, who is the chief villain and who is the chief tool of the system. So just because Beattie says a thing doesn't mean it's true. But because some of the things Beattie says are politically incorrect, so some people have challenged Fahrenheit 451. Irony of ironies, you write a book about how important it is to be a free thinker and to question everything, and people want to shut you down. Now, in my view, this is the best version of Fahrenheit to get. And this is the 60th anniversary edition. So I realise this is 10 years old now, but you can still find copies of this. What's so good about uh, this edition is, as well as 
the book, as well as Fahrenheit 451. You also get a section at the end which is about the book. Uh, it says history, criticism, context, or context and criticism. Um, and that section is put together by John Eller, who is the, the greatest Bradbury scholar. Uh, he really knows everything there is to know about Bradbury's writing. And he's also Bradbury's biographer. He wrote three volumes of biography of Bradbury. So he knows his stuff. So that's how much of this book is this back matter. Uh, and what you get in there is you get the story of Fahrenheit 451. So if you want to know more about how Fahrenheit came to be written, read this section. It's a terrific section. And it includes uh, a number of pieces that Bradbury himself wrote about Fahrenheit 451. So there's uh, the one called Investing Dimes, which is an article he wrote in 1982. And that's the one where he tells the story of going into the typewriter room, putting his dimes into the coin in the slot machines. Then there's a section in here called Part Two, Other Voices. And this gives you reviews of Fahrenheit 451 by various authors. And most of these are famous names. You've got Nelson Algren, uh, Sir John Betjeman, Sir Kingsley Amis, Harold Bloom, Margaret Atwood. So some famous people. Some articles in there about the film as well, the Truffaut film from 1966. So um, any version of Fahrenheit 451 is worth your time. But this one is particularly worth getting hold of because it gathers together all of those uh, behind-the-scenes articles, if you like. And that 60th anniversary edition has an introduction by Neil Gaiman, written specially for the book. And he describes Fahrenheit as a love letter to books, a love letter to people. And I can't think of a better way, really, of summing up Fahrenheit 451. Some people say Bradbury can't do characters or doesn't do characters. Those people are wrong. Fahrenheit 451 has got a really powerful central character in Guy Montag, who has an incredible character arc from being a tool of the system to being somebody who questions the system, challenges the system, and then ultimately becomes the phoenix from the ashes as that system destroys itself. What a character and what a book. So it's 70 years old. I don't think Fahrenheit 451 is showing its age. People have said, well, the idea of burning books is not so relevant now. We live in an age of e-books. Well, we do live in an age of e-books, but you might have seen that recent statistics have shown that book sales are doing quite well, actually. Paperbacks may have suffered a bit as e-books have come along, but hardcovers are still selling well. And there has been a decline in the sale of e-books. So I don't think that physical books are a passing fad. And even if they were, Bradbury is speaking metaphorically. He's not talking literally about burning books. He's talking about suppressing of ideas. And clearly, Ray thought very highly of Fahrenheit 451 himself in terms of where it sits in his body of work, because he chose these words for his gravestone. It's a very humble, small gravestone. Ray Bradbury, 1920 to 2012, author of Fahrenheit 451. A very modest gravestone. Or, depends what you think of Fahrenheit 451. If you think Fahrenheit 451 is a masterpiece, maybe that's actually a boast on his gravestone to say that he was the author of it. Either way, he clearly thought that it was an important work. I hope you enjoyed listening to that talk on Fahrenheit 451, which is a reproduction of a talk that I gave as part of Wolverhampton Literature Festival 2023. And as I said earlier, there is actually video of this talk, which you can see on my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101. I'll be back with some more Bradbury on Bradbury 100 in a couple of weeks, so I'll see you then. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, 
please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.